Super. Good to see you all. Um, where are they? There's Jonah. Look at him. Give us a wave. You're off to uh, the States this week. Good. Um, we're going to pray for you. Is that right? We, we, we can pray for Lydia as well, whether she's in the room or not. The Lord knows. That's great. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for Jonah and Lydia. Lord, we, we, we praise you for them. We praise you for your grace in their lives. We praise you for bringing them together. And Lord, we want to commit them into your care as they begin this next um, great part of the adventure in their lives. Lord, we pray that you would go before them. Lord, as we have just sung about our hope being only Jesus, Lord, we pray that as they, uh, as they cross the sea, um, as, as Lydia goes back to her home country and as Jonah makes it his home, Lord, that their hope would remain in the Lord Jesus. Lord, we pray that your blessings would be rich in their lives. And Lord, we pray that through them you'd bring blessings to others. Uh, we commit them to you in Jesus' name. And Father, for ourselves, we pray as we look at your word now, uh, as, as was prayed in our, our, our prayer time before the service, we pray that your word would go quickly from our ears into our hearts. Lord, we pray that your word would achieve your great purposes among us. And so we look to you to help. Amen. Uh, please do have a Bible open in front of you, um, or your journal, or if you haven't got a John journal and you'd like, I think there are still some more at the back, um, and we can follow on as we look at this together. Good. And Mark said it was a couple of months to Christmas. To be precise, I think it is 70 days until Christmas. There we go. And then Santa is coming to town. And we will hear the song, You better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. There we go. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sake. It's very creepy, isn't it? Really, really creepy. He knows all about you and you can't hide from him and he's coming. Um, lots of reasons why that is creepy, but one of them is he's going to find out who's naughty or nice. And the option really is you've got to be nice. You've got to be good. That's the only option, really. There's no other way. You've got to be good. And if you can't be good, you can't hide. So there's no hope. Good job we only hear that nonsense once a year, isn't it? And, but I wonder if there might be something that just, just maybe just kind of nags at us a little bit about that. Now, what if we get found out? Uh, Arthur Conan Doyle, who wrote the kind of Sherlock mysteries, allegedly played a practical joke on 12 of his friends. He sent them all an, an anonymous telegram uh, to 12 of his friends, and the word said, Flee, all has been discovered. It's just a joke, but... As the story goes, within 24 hours, all 12 had left the country. What if someone knows? Now, our passage this morning ends by telling us that Jesus knew what was in each person. He knows. He knows all about us. We can't hide from him. He's already found us out. So where does that leave us? Well, this passage tells us about the Lord Jesus' passion and his purpose. His passion and his purpose. Let me remind you what's going on. Um, as John begins his account of Jesus' life, he tells us in chapter 1, verse 14, he says, We have seen the glory of Jesus. 
And then he goes on to tell us what he has seen. He writes about what he has seen. And last time we saw how Jesus uh, performed the first of his signs. He turned the water into wine. And by doing so, he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. And then, then we move from a, from a party uh, to a, a worship service. Uh, another event that shows the glory of Jesus, but in a different way. So as we look at this, let's think again. What do we see of the glory of Jesus? See verse 13. We have the setting. And when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now the Passover was an, an annual festival. Um, one of the three times in the year when everyone was supposed to gather in Jerusalem. And, and it was the time when they, when they would come to remember a, a foundational moment in their history. That they would look back through the years to the time when their ancestors were slaves in Egypt and God came to rescue them. And in that great rescue, uh, each household was told to sacrifice a lamb and then paint the blood of the lamb over the doorframe. And the Lord protected his people by passing over the homes with the blood. He spared those homes. And the people were brought out from slavery and they were brought together to meet with God. And the Passover tells of those two things. It tells of a redemptive sacrifice that enables meeting with God. Redemptive sacrifice that enables meeting with God. And so every year they would remember that great event at the Passover festival. So Jesus, uh, as he would have done each year, he makes the trip up to Jerusalem. And uh, he, he, he goes there and John tells us of an event that reveals his passion and his purpose. So let's think about his passion first, verses 13 to 17. Uh, my um, my, my father-in-law, um, my father-in-law doesn't feel like he's got to know someone until he's had an argument with them, until he's got a rise out of them. Um, something a bit disturbing about that. Um, but also, he's kind of onto something, isn't he? He's kind of onto something. You know, when somebody rises with anger, when something riles them, You see a bit deeper into that person, don't you? You get to know them a little bit better. Uh, You could see something a bit ugly. You could see something quite beautiful, but you see something more. Road rage, I guess, is an anger that typically reveals something deep in a person that is quite ugly. But but then on the other hand, uh, the angry tears that well up when atrocities are uncovered in a newly liberated Ukrainian city, that kind of anger is a good anger. Jesus gets to Jerusalem and he is angry. Verse 14, he finds this thing happening in the temple. It says, uh, Jesus finds people selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. He finds this and he rages. He makes a whip. He drives out the animals. He throws the money on the ground. He turns over the tables. He bellows at the dove sellers. Get these out of here. What's his problem? These traders are doing a good job, aren't they? They're they're providing a helpful service. The the instructions for the Passover really specifically says you can't do this at home. You've got to go to the temple to do this. You've got to go to the place that God has chosen for his name to live. You've got to be there. And so they would travel from far and wide. They would travel a long way to get to Jerusalem. They couldn't bring their animals with them. They'd have to buy them when they got there. And, And they would come from different places with different currencies and to be able to give some money at the temple, they had to change the currency. Now, this was all activity, 
enabling people to worship God. It's a good thing. Enabling people to worship is a good thing. Right at the beginning, that's what people are made for. Now, we are made for God. We're made to worship God. The whole of our purpose as human beings is to worship God. And the temple had been built so that God could be with his people. It had been built so that, so that God's people could come together and enjoy their God. Now, the instructions given about going to the temple said, you come, you bring your sacrifices, bring your gifts, bring your offerings. And Deuteronomy 12 says, there in the presence of the Lord your God, you and your family shall eat and rejoice. You remember the Passover, what the Passover was about? Redemptive sacrifice that enables meeting with God. Well, these traders, they're, they're there to help that happen. They're there to help people worship. It's a good thing that they're doing. But Jesus knows what is in a person. Now, these traders have moved inside the temple courts. Now, maybe at some point, the pragmatists among them said... You know, it's, we're crammed into the streets around the temple. There's all that space there. Let's, let's use it. We need to sell this stuff to help people worship. Let's just, just, it's a practical solution, isn't it? There was space there. The problem isn't, isn't what they're doing, though. For Jesus, it's, it's where they do it, isn't it? He says, stop turning my father's house into a market. They've got all the apparatus for worship, but the focus has gone. Love for God seems to have been drained away and, and something else has replaced it. I don't know if you could imagine that. Could you imagine going through the, the outward form of religious practice? You go to church, you go to your church groups, you just do the kind of things that the Christians do. You support charities like we've heard this morning and, and we, we give to the poor and, we, and we, we maybe wear a cross and we mention the Bible in conversation and it's all good stuff. But can you imagine all that outer form hiding an empty heart? It'd be easy, I guess, at this point to, to point the finger over there, to point the finger at others. We can maybe drag up examples of where Christian religion has been used as a front to make somebody rich. We could sadly drag up examples of where the church has been a breeding ground for, for horrendous things, sexual abuse happening, all under the pretense of religion. We could point the finger over there, but I wonder about what's going on here. And might it be that we cover the real direction of our lives under a cloak of Christian practice? Could we imagine that? Could we imagine our hearts not worshipping God, but worshipping worshiping money instead, as these traders were? Get so easily seduced by it, don't we, by money. We don't want to part with it. We, we overwork to get more of it. We love to think about what we can spend it on. We fear losing it. Our hands are, are tightly shut, even when there are needs around us. Can we imagine? Imagine that going on while we go through the empty form of worship. Can, can you imagine a daydreaming of your next holiday in a prayer meeting? Can you imagine having your Bible open in front of you, but really your mind is just whirring through your accounts? Can you imagine? Now what Jesus found in the temple was the apparatus for worship, but in the wrong place. Love for God was out and love for money was in. And Jesus knows what is in a person. He knows what is in me. He knows what is in you. And whilst, no, the Bible says all of our lives are to be offered in worship, he, he sees what really goes on. And when he gets to the temple, he's angry. Angry about religious hypocrisy. 
But do you see what drives his anger? Do you see where his passion is? Listen again to his words in verse 16. You see there? He says, stop turning my father's house into a market. My father's house. We saw in chapter 1 that Jesus is the beloved son of the father. He loves his father. He has loved his father right since the beginning. Before the world was in existence, he loved his father. He, He loved his father as the world was brought into being in the creation. He loved his father in the eternal plans that the father and the son made for the son to come and live like a man. Live as a man among us. Now the reason that the son of God is walking the earth is because he loves his father. He loves his father. And his father's house is where his father was to be worshipped. The place that the psalmist says, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. The temple was to be the place where where God was treasured and honoured and and loved and known. In in the world that had grown so dark since the fall, that the temple was to be the place, that the place where things were as they should have been, just like the Garden of Eden, a, a place where God and man enjoyed fellowship together. The temple was to be that beacon of light in a, in a dark, dark world. A place where people could go and meet with God and honour God. And Jesus walks into this place and what he finds is that his father's honour is being trampled. And there's no worship of God. Maybe like walking into your home and finding someone tearing the family pictures off the wall and smashing them up. The the disciples see this and we're told they remember the psalm which says, zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus loves his father. The reason he walks the earth is because he loves his father. The reason he has come is because he loves his father. He has come because for ages and ages the honour of his father has been trampled underfoot. No, not just in the temple, but in every human heart. Hearts that were made to worship God, hearts made to enjoy God and love God have been, well, they've pushed it out. They've been filled with other stuff. God is squeezed out or refused or just denied. Now, the worship of God that should have been led by the image bearers of God in all creation has fallen silent. And the son cannot bear to see his father so dishonoured. Loves his father. That's why he came. That's his passion. But he didn't just come to be annoyed. He didn't just come to make a scene. He came to act. And so the next thing we see in the passage in verses 18 to 25 is Jesus' purpose. His purpose in verses 18 to 25. You see in verse 18 that the Jews confront him. What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do this? They're saying, Jesus, who are you? Now, who, who are you to do this? Tell us who you are. Jesus says, fine, you want to know who I am? You, won't, you really want to know this is who I am, he says. Destroy this temple. And I will raise it again in three days. Now, that's a curveball. They weren't expecting that. <laughs> Has this guy lost his mind? took 46 years to build this temple. The the original temple built by Solomon kind of a thousand years earlier had been destroyed by the Babylonians and kind of 500 years afterwards it had been rebuilt. But now, Herod, 46 years earlier, had started this great big building project in the temple. 
for 46 years they'd been built. And they were building, and the building would go on for another 30 years. What nonsense is Jesus saying about destroying and rebuilding it in three days? The disciples don't know at the time. They're just as befuddled as everyone else. Uh, But John helpfully gives us a heads up in verse 21. uh, As he writes from the perspective of knowing how the story ends. He says, but the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. It's helping us see the direction of travel. And as, as we read on, we need to bear that direction of travel in mind. What does it mean? Jesus loves his father. And his zeal for his father's house, that throwing the traders out who were trampling on the honor of his father, it shows his concern that people come to God in the right way. He wants people to come and benefit from what the temple stood for. You remember the Passover? Redemptive sacrifice to enable meeting with God. That's what the temple stood for. That's what matters to Jesus. And he hasn't come to be annoyed about what's happening. He's come to act. So in verse 17, when the disciples remember the psalm, Psalm 69, that says, zeal for your house will consume me. That's not a metaphor. He's come to be consumed. His great love for his father has brought him here and it will consume him. It will tear him apart. He says to the Jews, destroy this temple. The temple was already well underway to being destroyed. Now, as the, the stones were being built upon one another, what the temple was about was being dismantled. They were trampling the honor of God underfoot. The heart of the temple is being taken apart. And that disregard for God in their worship is going to shine out most clearly as their hostility to Jesus rises. And when they kill Jesus, they're simply continuing their corrupted worship of the temple. It's all of one piece. Now, as as John writes, he, he, he keeps marking out the times of the Passover. He will tell us of three Passovers and at the third one. As the Passover lambs are being killed, Jesus will be crucified. He already told us in verse 29 of chapter 1 that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Telling us that the, that the blood on the doors of the houses in Egypt that protected those slaves was anticipating a greater sacrifice and a blood that would win a greater rescue. Jesus' zeal, his passion for his father would consume him. But it wouldn't be the end of him. That would not be the end of the story for him or for us. in, In John 2, Jesus is speaking in advance as he says, destroy this temple and I will raise it in three days. And John says he's speaking about his body. That doesn't make it any easier. That doesn't make it easier at all, does it? The Jews are incredulous because they think he means the stones of the temple. And it's taken 46 years and you can't speed that process up to three days. But when he speaks about his body, no amount of time can reverse the process of death. He's not talking about speeding up a process. This is a power unknown. 
But, but, but the pattern for all of this has been long drilled into these people. Each year as the Passover was celebrated, the lamb would be killed, that redemptive sacrifice to enable a meeting with God. And the Passover pattern was a promise, opening up a hope of things to come. And John declares that the word, the one who was with God and is God, became flesh and lived among us. Or he tabernacled among us. Just like God of old pitching his tent among the Israelites. Just like God of old who filled the temple with his glory presence. But now so much more as God himself in the flesh lives among us. And as that temple building becomes obsolete through the corrupted worship. A new temple. A true temple is rising up. Not made of bricks and stone. But made of flesh and blood. The Passover told of redemptive sacrifice. A life given as a substitute to release from the grip of sin and death. To enable meeting with God. And Jesus fulfills what was modelled. That that place of sacrifice is now Jesus himself who will be consumed. As the Lamb of God he will die to take away the sin of the world. And that place of meeting God is now Jesus himself. The one who rose to be the only way to the Father. That's his purpose. His purpose is to be the sacrifice, to create the way, to enable the way for his father to be worshipped. So where does that leave us? Where does it leave us? Well, look at how people respond in this passage. Verse 18, the Jews respond. What? There's something a bit strange about the way they respond to Jesus. You try and picture the scene where Jesus has just rampaged through the temple courts. There is chaos. And he's firing this accusation that says, you have got the worship of God wrong. And they say, give us a sign. Perform some trick on our demand so that we can decide whether or not we will take what you say as right. But what about how he's just pointed his finger into their hearts? He just said, your hearts are wrong. Before God, you think you're worshipping God, but you're not. And they don't seem to care. Verse 22 marks a better response. It's long after this as the disciples reflect back and they recall what he had said. And it says, then they believed the scripture and the words Jesus had spoken helpful for us I think as we reflect back on this event like those disciples as we follow the memories of those first witnesses but but then come the the closing verses verses 23 to 25 and that they're a bit of a transition section but but I think they unsettle us they unsettle me anyway John kind of gives this summary about many people in Jerusalem who see the signs and they believe on the name of Jesus but then it says Jesus doesn't entrust himself to there's something not quite right there's perhaps something superficial maybe something similar to the form of worship in the temple without the heart and verse 25 says Jesus knew what was in each person he knows what if someone knows what if someone could see you through and through what if Jesus were to 
point his finger into your heart and say, you've got it wrong. Would you care? We can't hide from Jesus. And Jesus knows all about us. He knows what is in us. He has already found us out. But he's not Santa, who, who knows but leaves us to be good or to get out. You see where the great passion of Jesus leads. Now we are found lacking in the worship of God that we were made for. Aren't we? In our foolishness, we refuse the eternal happiness and we plunge our faces into sewage. And we drink filth trying to be satisfied. And we could do it with a religious veneer. It can be shiny and smart on the outside. But Jesus sees to our hearts. And yet his great passion is for his father's honour. He loves his father so immensely. Loves his father so much that he will make a way. He will make a way even for wayward wallies like me. Maybe like you. He'll make a way for us to be brought back from the brink. He knows exactly what you are like. And he wants you to meet with his father. He wants you to enjoy the happiness you were made for in the worship of God for all time. And so he laid down his life. His passion consumed him. Willingly paying the redemptive price for your sin so that you will never need to. In some ways, the the zeal he has for the glory of his father should alarm us. He knows us. We can't hide. We are already found out. And we haven't got many options, really. There's only really one option. The the only way to deal with what's going on in our hearts, the only way to deal with our sin is through the sacrifice of Jesus. The only way. But that means that we can bring to him our hypocrisy. Bring to him our false worship. Our our love for the stuff that fails. and Our love for money. And our stupid striving to find satisfaction in the fleeting pleasures of this world. We can bring it all to him. He knows already. We can bring it all to him. And he's paid the price so that we can be forgiven. You see, Jesus isn't a signpost. He's the destination. And he laid down his life. And then he took it up again. Because he is the true temple. Redemptive sacrifice to enable meeting with God. He is the only place we can meet with God. See, his his zeal for the glory of his Father should not just alarm us, it can bring us great comfort. Your salvation, your salvation forever and ever, rests in the love that Jesus has for his Father. That's a good foundation. He knows us. He knows what we most need. And he made himself to be what we most need. We can't hide from him, but we can be hidden in him. And when we put our trust in him, all the benefits of his redemptive sacrifice are written over our hearts. Our sin is paid in full. We are released from the the slavery of corruption. And when we trust in him, then the purpose of his redemptive sacrifice is opened up to us. We can meet with God. We can know his father as our own father. And we can enjoy and worship God as we were made to do. And that foretaste we have now awaits its fulfillment in the age to come. We can't hide from Jesus. But we can be hidden in him. Where are you going to put your hope? Let's 
spend a moment, ask yourself that question. Where will you put your hope?